I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, my father gets extremely bold with Jimi Hendrix's Axis, my hometown's lousy with pop hits, and my brother meets a beetle, which sucks. I've been east and I've been west and I've been all over this town. I got myself into trouble and now I'm bound for my hole in the ground. Oh boy! I'm bound for my hole in the ground. I went out one Saturday night to have a little fun, you see. Little did I ever know that trouble was awaiting for me. Oh boy! Trouble was awaiting for me. I've told this story at countless dinner parties and several first dates, and it's almost certainly not true. But six months after marrying my mother, my father found himself stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the home of the 101st Airborne, known as the Screaming Eagles. As clinic physician, one of Dad's major responsibilities was conducting re-up physicals, or what he liked to call examining the assholes of assholes. Fifteen guys at a time would line up naked in a brightly lit room, and Dad would go around checking their equipment and adjacent areas for anything and everything. VD, inguinal hernias, self-abuse, you name it. But even if Dad had possessed some rare form of clairvoyance that enabled him to know that one of those assholes belonged to the most influential electric guitar player of the 20th century, it wouldn't have made much of a difference. Dad was a devout Charlie Christian man, you see. Charlie Christian, who died impossibly young at 21 of hard living and consumption, played elegant, clean-toned runs with the Benny Goodman Big Band in the 1930s, transforming the guitar from a rhythmic component into a lead instrument and profoundly influencing successive generations of players. More to the point, had the wind itself purple haze from Jimmy's low end and cried, Dad would have been too miserable to notice. My father enlisted in the Army promptly after finishing his residency, the better to get the mandatory two-year commitment over with. Basic training wasn't too nightmarish at the relatively plush Fort Sam Houston and San Antonio, Texas. So not awful, in fact, that Mom and Dad conceived my brother Johnny there in the spring of 1960. They managed to avoid an overseas assignment due to some recent legislation, but having completed only two of the four years of his residency, Dad was deemed by the Army Draft Board a non-board-qualified physician, which meant he'd be the junior of two doctors overseeing the medical clinic at a Kentucky Army base. Ending up at Fort Campbell, the butt of a cruel barb at his expense, he quietly simmered as he went about his appointed rounds. Dad had always excelled. Even as a young teen, when he wanted to be a soda jerk to earn some pocket change, his parents said, No, you're too smart. It's beneath you. They were right about this much. Their firstborn son, Richard, was made for medicine. That was apparent early on. At age four, he began swabbing the ears of the family dog, Nellie, a spitz, and rigorously attended to a subsequent pair of chronically symptomatic Old English Bulldogs. As a medical student and beyond, his instincts and diagnostic skills earned him the respect of his mentors. Then came Fort Campbell. Military drab, permanently overcast, soulless, its population consisted mostly of grunts, which, as my parents saw it, 
greatly reduced the odds of striking up a meaningful conversation. What they resented most was an absence of culture. The nearest movie theater, where mom and dad took in Psycho and La Dolce Vita, was 55 miles away in Nashville. As for music, dad had to mail order Blues for Night People by ace guitarist Charlie Bird, and its arrival was cause for celebration, notable simply as a rare keepsake moment from the Kentucky years. Mom and Dad would pass the evenings listening to the Grand Old Opry on WSM. And since sound waves travel in utero, I listened to a lot of country music, much of it of a high lonesome variety in the world. From Nashville, Tennessee, the country music capital of the world, here's the Pet Milk Grand Old Opry, brought to you by Pet Evaporated Milk, Pet Instant Non-Fat Dry Milk, and Pet Red's Frozen Pie. One night they ventured out to Nashville to catch the Opry in person and got caught up in a hellacious snowstorm on the return trip. After that, they stayed closer to home, resigned to their fate. To maintain her sanity, Mom found a friend, another medical wife with an infant about Johnny's age. Mom and Shirley would wheel the kids around in bulky strollers amid patchy grass and featureless brick housing units under a sky that was often dotted with people. The babies would gaze upward, wrapped at the sight of the down-drifting paratroopers, blissfully unaware that in five years or so, one of those human shapes would transfix the nation by setting fire to his black, hand-painted Fender Stratocaster. Notably his long-standing resentment of authority, Private Hendricks was not made for the military. He was induced to enlist in May 1961 to avoid a likely jail term, either for auto theft or possibly just for riding in stolen cars. Yet he craved a screaming eagle's patch, and the prospect of earning one very likely provided him with a crucial bit of incentive to get through basic training. Hendricks turned out to be a better-than-average paratrooper. By early January 1962, he had completed 25 jumps and earned that coveted patch. He was also playing frequent gigs with the Casuals, the band he'd formed with his fellow Screaming Eagle and bowling pal, Billy Cox. But using borrowed instruments, or worse, items checked out from the on-base service club, the Eagle's Roost, had become intolerable. He desperately missed his guitar, a Red Den Electro with the name of his high school girlfriend written on it. Early in 1962, he wrote a desperate letter to his father saying, I really need it now. Al Hendricks, a strict disciplinarian, had been disgusted by his son's delinquency and thought the army might do him some good. But he was also familiar with his son's misery from a previous letter that described jump school as hell, and the old man obliged him. Factoring in a few weeks for the six-string parcel to travel from Seattle to Kentucky via the U.S. Postal Service, it's reasonable to conclude that it would have arrived by the middle of February. I contend that on the very day that I entered this world, Monday, February 19, 1962, as my mother held me in her arms for the first time, Jimmy was mere miles away, curled up in his bunk, with Betty Jean clutched in his huge hands.
If that sounds fanciful, it's no stretch to assert that Jimmy and I shared something very concrete. A May 31st release date from the Army. Dad's tour of duty ended on that day, while Jimmy still owed Uncle Sam a few years and would have to incur a bit of self-sabotage to finagle an early departure. Most sources agree that, despite the damning assessments of his superiors, which started to multiply in February, doubtless exacerbated by that crucial mail order, and despite his resulting demotion in rank, it was an ankle injury sustained in an airborne jump, his 26th, that led to Hendricks being discharged honorably on the last day of May, one year after he enlisted in the Army. A good deal of documentation from Jimmy's Army days has come to light in recent years, including those damning accounts, like that of Lieutenant Louis J. Hoekstra, who wrote, His mind apparently can't function while performing duties and thinking about his guitar. Or Lieutenant Gilbert Batchman, whose request for discharge indicated that Jimmy had no known good characteristics. To my knowledge, though, details of Jimmy's ankle injury have not surfaced. But assuming he did sprain an ankle in one of his landings, he would have gone to the medical clinic to get it checked out. After all, he had previously availed himself of the Army's dental clinic, so he was not one to shun basic self-care. And had he come to the clinic with a twisted ankle, well, who would have looked him over? Why, Dad, of course. Low man on the totem pole. Checker of assorted low-grade maladies. Resenter of assholes. So, is it possible my father laid hands on Jimi Hendrix? More than a half century later, Dad, ever the medical man, refuses to entertain such a hypothetical. On the last day of June, 1962, Dad takes his last salute at the sentry post and drops his discharge papers in the mailbox just outside. A joyous moment. With the light green Nash Rambler loaded and ready to roll, he glimpses Fort Campbell in the rear view for the last time, then heads on a northeast diagonal path and point Elmhurst, Queens. Mom does crosswords while Johnny, 19 months and thankfully a good car rider, lies untethered on a mattress placed over the back seat and watches in fascination as the world whirls by. Somewhere between Tennessee and Virginia, they catch a corny song on the radio and are content to leave it on. Johnny, I said we were through Just to see what you would do you stood When they get to the chorus, they share their first really solid mutual laugh in months. That I were dead. Oh, Johnny, get angry, Johnny, get mad Give me the biggest lecture I ever had They listen for the singer's name when the song's done, and when they hear Joni Summers, they laugh again. For Joni is what Dad calls Mom, and summer is just beginning, and sometimes the radio is singing your life. Here I catch a break. On account of my extreme youth, I'm flying the friendly skies of United, nestled in the warm embrace of Celeste, a woman in the employ of Mom's friend Shirley, who agreed to convey me, like Moses in the wicker basket, into the arms of my loving grandmother. Dad, Mom, and Johnny spend a night in historic Luray, Virginia, home to the great stalactite organ, before continuing past the hallowed halls of justice in Washington, D.C., and then due north, where Grandma and Grandpa had found them, 
us, I guess you could say, a nice two-bedroom apartment on Justice Avenue, suitable to our needs for the time being. In dreams, I still return to the home where my family settled at the end of 1965. Located along the outer ring of an orderly circular block, Five Sherwood Road stood pleasantly removed from car traffic and most random passers-by. But inside, wherever you happen to be, be it bathtub, basement, or attic, you are always aware of the physical presence of whoever else was there. The scrape of Dad's chair as he rose from the kitchen table, the staccato cadence of Mom's footfalls on the staircase, were inescapable. Coming from a one-story garden apartment in nearby Englewood, the new house felt gigantic to me. My sense of direction has never been good, and at age three it barely existed. Mom had to keep her ears attuned from my muffled cries, issuing from the basement, an upstairs bedroom, or wherever I'd managed to end up. Mom and Dad were in the main bedroom, overlooking a green grass lawn with a horse chestnut tree at one end of it. Johnny and I shared a room down the hall, and my sister, born Elizabeth but always known as Liza, slept across the hall from the folks' room in her crib. On the main floor, Dad had a small den with a desk at the far end and a TV set near the entrance. I watched Romper Room in there, seated on the floor against the couch to be closer to the screen. The show was hosted by Miss Louise, an affable teacherly type who presided over a group of kids known as Doobies after the show's moral-dispensing apiary mascot. There was also a Don't Be. We learned the difference through an extremely helpful little ditty. I always do what's right. I never do anything wrong. I'm a romper room doobie. I do be all day long. Do be a sidewalk player. Do be a sidewalk player. Don't be a street player. Don't be a street player. Do be a car sitter. Do be a car sitter. Don't be a car stander. Don't be a car stander. Do be a plate cleaner. Do Miss Louise regularly broke the fourth wall by peering out at the TV audience through her magic mirror, as if she could see us. This confused me to no end. One time Miss Louise was doing something about the seasons. Who can tell me the name of one of the seasons, she asked. Winter, piped up one little doobie. Fall, cried another. Another one came through with summer, but then the doobies were stumped. There are four seasons, said Miss Louise, turning now to look at us, at me. Does anyone know what the other season is called? Spring, I called. Spring! Do you know what? Miss Louise said, with a look of authentic wonder. I think I heard someone say it out there. That's right, boys and girls. It's spring. It would take some time for me to grasp that the people I watched on TV couldn't see me that the music being played on the radio was not being performed by the band at the same moment and being beamed through our hi-fi, that alkaline batteries had nothing to do with alkaline of the Detroit Tigers, that the word application had nothing to do with apples, that Mr. Noviello, the man my parents hired to paint our house, was not named after his trademark hue. As for my strong feeling that someone was watching and listening to me at all times, someone I knew well, 
I was on firmer ground. She seemed to know intuitively when I'd neglected whatever business was at hand, whether it was drawing between my toes or finishing my milk. Could she read my thoughts? Unsure of the limits of her power, I decided to test it. One bright frigid afternoon, when Mom told me to go outside and play, I pulled the strings of my parka hood so tight my whole head was enclosed in a warm, muffled cocoon. Pausing at the end of the driveway, just as far from the front door as I could be without standing in the street, I glanced left and right, then, moving my lips apart minimally, not unlike a ventriloquist, I half-whispered, Shit. No lightning. No mom materializing out of thin air. I was emboldened now. Fuck. I said fully out loud this time. And again, nothing. Glorious nothing. The epithet I'd saved for last was one I'd been hearing bandied about the kitchen table when Grandma and Grandpa came in from Brooklyn. Grandma would even say it, so it couldn't be as bad as the first two. But it sure sounded like a curse word. Schmuck, I stated, like I'd been staying it my whole life. Right up the road was a narrow asphalt path that led to a vast lawn fronting a somber Tudor Revival mansion. The Cotswold, as it was known, could almost be taken for a mirage at first glimpse. With its steep roof of dusky stone, tall brick chimneys, and soaring stained glass, it was an intimidating structure no matter how many times you viewed it. Even more so when you had to get close to it, cutting through the rear car park to reach Serpentine Road. Somewhere on the inside was an apartment that had belonged to Glenn Miller, the trombonist and big band leader who was America's premier hitmaker during World War II. He was living at the Cotswold when he halted his golden career to join the army, and this is where his wife and two adopted children heard the news in late 1944 that his military plane, en route to Paris for a Christmas broadcast, had disappeared over the English Channel. We could not have settled near a more un-Hendricks-like spectral presence. Pale, politically conservative, uninclined to set fire to his chosen instrument even if it were possible, the bespectacled Midwesterner was as gung-ho to join the military as Jimmy was to escape it. A full 20 years before the master guitarist abased himself to get drummed out of the army, Miller, long in tooth at 38, had to entreat the draft board to allow him to join the war effort. Having already been rejected by the Naval Reserve, he stressed his morale-boosting band-leading abilities to the Army brass and was granted acceptance in fall 1942. Miller made good on his pitch, infusing leaden Sousa marches with the jaunt of his popular hits and in the process, shaking up some military squares. Goddamn idiot officers, he called them, who refused to get hip to his trip. So maybe he and Jimmy weren't so far apart after all. True, Hendrix represented a new sound and vision, while Miller's genius was giving marching orders straight to the mainstream sweet spot. But both figures embodied popular music at a momentous historical juncture, and each man became legendary through his shocking demise. Tenafly had its share of hitmakers who were very much alive. Leslie Gore, 
who'd grown up in Tenafly but attended nearby private schools, was at her peak when we arrived in town. Sunshine, lollipops, and green bows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Gore would seem to share little in common with Glenn Miller, but she too was internationally famous when she put her career on the back burner. Like my mother, the former Leslie Goldstein was a Jewish girl from Brooklyn, and like my brother, she attended Sarah Lawrence, where she didn't win any friends by complaining about the food. The country singer Jimmy Dean, James Dean, a Texas transplant and a bona fide star by mid-decade, made his way to Tenafly's East Hill in the late 50s. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Big John. Big bad job. Marked by opulent showboat homes and multi-acre spreads, this geographically vertiginous zone had an aesthetic quite distinct from the rest of the borough, which was named Ten Swamps by a disdainful Dutchman. Unlike our neighborhood, where streets had humble arboreal names like Oak and Elm, and across the tracks, where roads were named for regular Joes like George, Norman, and Franklin, up on the hill, the names had a pronounced haughtiness to them. The major roads... Essex, Churchill, and Kent seemed inspired by gout-riddled English lords reaching for the next pudding spoon nonetheless. That was inedible muck, and there wasn't enough of it. Blah. In 1957, the teen idol Paul Anka bought a large home up there for his mother after receiving his first monster check for... Diana. Fittingly, he and La Famille settled into a vast spread on the very pinnacle of the East Hill, Woodland Street, beyond which the land levels off briefly in anticipation of the Palisades Interstate Parkway and the Triassic-era Palisades themselves, which tower over the Hudson River for miles and miles. Roughly a century earlier, George Coppell, a New York City financier who'd gotten stupendously rich overseeing railroad bankruptcies, had gazed across the same expanse from the Manhattan side and dreamed a dream. He built himself a sumptuous manor replete with statuary and fountains on a 50-acre plot in Tenafly and called it Birchwood Knoll. Eventually it passed to his son Herbert and his wife, who first enlarged the mansion to 68 rooms, then grew tired of it and had it torn down and replaced with a slightly smaller version of itself, a.k.a. the Cotswold. This wouldn't be half as interesting had Coppell not been born in Liverpool. The air was rich with musical phantasms. Flash forward to November 1996. Johnny's a producer at MTV News, and he's assigned to interview Ringo Starr. Now, Johnny frequently interacts with well-known and famous musicians in his work. But this is different. This is meeting a Beatle, a real Beatle, albeit a Beatle who hasn't put out an album in several years. Johnny spends considerable time getting dressed for the occasion. Deeply into his vintage tab collar shirt look at the time, he dry cleans and dons his favorite, a royal blue number, and arrives on light feet at Ringo's hotel. How you doing? As he's getting the man set up for the interview, placing a mic on Star, the drummer recoils. He gives Johnny a bitter, owlish look, and in his inimitable Scouse accent says, That's the ugliest fucking shirt I've ever seen in my life. Fighting back tears, Johnny manages to get through the interview, 
but just barely. Come on, John. Let's you... have a laugh. The idea that a beetle has actually taken the time to insult him, his taste, his mojo, it's almost too much to bear. Ringo, with his puppy dog eyes and plummy sing-alongs, had always been the beetle's gentlest spirit. We'd seen the dark side of John, who would rather see her dead, little girl, and George in his lacerating hate note to the tax man. Paul, too, had shown himself a bit of a cad, with the cutting kiss-offs he added to I'll follow the sun and I'm looking through you. Surely the last of the four you'd expect meanness from was Ringo. Peace and love, right? Peace and love, peace and love. A year or so later, in 1988, Ringo entered rehab and eventually kicked the alcohol habit that had come to consume him. He later said that many of those besotted years are completely gone from his memory. He probably didn't mean to be so cruel, Johnny wrote recently. And that shirt was uglier than shit. Next up, we'll all meet the Beatles and my brother the genius. Also, let's listen to the scariest song in the world. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of all the songs used in this episode and more. And if you liked what you heard, please do subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. I am the fly.